All right, so Isaiah chapter 32, we're going to be in verses 1 through 18. It reads this way, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like a shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then... The eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will, speak, will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the word, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie a sackcloth around your waists. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the results of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and quiet resting places. You can be seated. This morning, we are going to be looking at the king's calling to the complacent. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, if we come to sit in this building just to hear a motivational talk, God, just to hear wise sayings, just to hear a bunch of words, if it is not your word, Lord God, we are here in vain. We gather this morning because we believe that you are a God who has chosen to speak to us. And if you have something to say, Lord Jesus, we need to hear it. God, may these not be my words. May these be yours. Father, we pray that you would speak this morning, that you would meet all of us just where we're at. So your name I pray. Amen. So I don't know how many of you had to do like high school reading plans where you had to read all of these old classic classic books and things like that. Um, I don't know how many of you had to read a book called The Odyssey uh, during high school. It is actually a, a book that comes from uh, the 7th century BC, and it was very popular all across the entire Mediterranean region at that time. 
and, and as a part of the plot, there's a, a man named Odysseus, and Odysseus is the protagonist in this, and he's trying to journey home after the Trojan War. Uh, he's facing lots of perils, though, as he goes. There's going to be monsters. There was a battle. There's going to be storms. Um, yet what we see as Odysseus travels home is that actually uh, the most dangerous place for him isn't actually, you know, at a storm or in a war. It's not even in a monster's lair. The most dangerous place is at ease, in complacency, just slowly coasting along the sea. See, as the story unfolds, we're introduced to these people, and they're called sirens. You might have heard of them before. What would happen is sailors would coast along. They wouldn't be suspecting anything. They'd hear these beautiful voices. They'd look off in the distance, and they'd see the, the sun shining down on an island. They, they'd hear voices as they got closer, actually, even telling them things that they wanted to hear, complimenting them. Coasting and complacent, these sailors who were just coasting along, they would sail closer and closer and closer to the sounds of the sirens. Yet these sailors didn't see something. What they didn't see is that there was a pile of bones of dead sailors at the bottom of the ocean for all of those who had come close to these sirens because they were actually coasting towards their death. In complacency, these unsuspecting sailors were going directly towards the rocks of the sea where they would be crashed. Now Odysseus, he finds out about this actually in the book. And so it's actually a pretty gripping scene. It's something that's very memorable. Um, and so he realizes if he continues to coast in complacency, then what's going to happen is he knows he's going to hear the temptation and he's not going to be able to resist. So instead of doing that, he comes up with a plan because see, Odysseus is going homeward. He doesn't want to go towards his death. He has his eyes set on where he's going. And so he, he tells his sailors, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to, to tie me to the mast of my boat. I want you to tie me to the sail. And so he has his men tie him to the sail. They plug their ears so they can't hear. And as they're sailing, Odysseus hears the sirens. And in that moment, he wants to go. He wants to go directly towards death, but he doesn't. He's pulling against the, the ropes that are tying him down, but he is held back. He is held on course. He is held towards life because he, like the rest of the sailors, refused to coast in complacency. Listen, this morning, in our own flesh, all of us, I don't care who you are, all of mankind, we tend to drift towards so many sirens of different kinds, and what they all lead towards is the same thing, and that is death. I wonder if the author, Homer, who composed these lines of this book, uh, actually, actually took some of his ideas and some of his imagery from Proverbs. I want you to listen to this real quick based off of what I just saw. Listen to these words from Proverbs verse nine, or chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. The woman folly, she is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way, Whoever is simple, let him turn here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there. 
that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This morning, complacency is deadly, and we're going to see that. But we also know that complacency is actually something that we all deal with as humans. So maybe some of you this morning are here. You need to hear this message about complacency because maybe you are kind of just stuck in your own pride. You're feeling good. Life is good for you this morning. You know, you worked hard so you could get to this point where you're like, I just want to coast. Isn't that what it's all about anyways? Maybe some people here are complacent because you're paralyzed in your own fear. Maybe you say to yourself, man, I've already failed so many times, Andrew. What's the point of even trying? Now, maybe some of you don't even want to hear this because it just sounds too burdensome, right? You already have so many things on your to-do list. When you, when you go from here, you got the next thing to do and the next thing to do. Andrew, why are you trying to add another thing to my list? Or maybe some of you who are here would, would rather actually just hear uh, a sermon about how not to be complacent that's actually about uh, being effective rather being, than being faithful. Maybe you would rather hear a version of being complacency that moves you up in the world rather than moves you on your knees before the Lord. Look, as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought that I would, you know, maybe do a little, little Google search, learn a little bit about complacency. And what I was hit with is tons and tons and tons of content from the world. I could tell you about military strategy, about how not to be complacent. I could tell you about how to have a more successful business, about how not to be complacent. I could tell you any number of self-help ideas and all sorts of quotes, but this morning, that's not where we're looking. This morning, we are called to be rooted in the Word of God, and what we see is that this is a word directly to those who are complacent. This morning, I wonder where you are as it relates to complacency. So we're actually going to begin by diving into the middle of this passage of Scripture. I want you to look at verses 9 through 13. The reason we're going to start here is because in this entire text, most of it is actually a prophecy. But when we get to verses 9 through 13, this is where the only commandment in the whole passage rests. This is the only calling that we see in the passage. And what we see is that it's a call to complacence. Now, as, as you look at verse 9, you might say, Andrew, one second— I'm a man, I'm a boy. This is a call to women, so why on earth does this, why does this apply to me? Now, first of all, we want to see why is Isaiah calling out women here? I'll, I'll be honest in saying that actually we, we don't know exactly why he's specifically calling out women here. Uh, one thought is actually that there's a passage in Isaiah 3 uh, where the daughters of Zion are called out, uh, as well as the rest of God's people for their vanity and for their pride. And so one thought is that he's actually kind of looking back to that imagery. But even when he was doing that, he was calling out the daughters of Zion, and then he was calling out the sons of Zion as well. Uh, one commentator notes that these, these women are probably exa an example of complacency uh, in what was a predominantly escapist society of that time. Now, what that means is that the people were looking away from God. They were looking to other distractions. They were looking to other sources that they could go to, other places they could run, because there were nations that were trying to take them over. At this point, this was the Assyrians. If you look at the two chapters before this, chapter 31 and 32, uh, we see this. As God's people are looking everywhere, everywhere but towards God. This morning, this is a call to those who are complacent, a people just like us. So where are we going this morning? Here's kind of the, the general outline. We're going to keep it pretty simple. First of all, we're going to look at why we cannot be complacent. We're going to look at the why first, 
And then as we close, we're going to look at actually what we're called to instead, and then what are the results um, that come from that. So first, so first of all, go ahead and look back at verses 1 through 5 with me. And we're going to see the first reason that we can't be complacent. And the first reason is because a king will reign. We cannot be complacent because a king will reign. Now, as we come to this text, what we see is that, that mankind, that we, in our own complacency, we default towards complacency. And in our complacency, we default towards sin. But what God defaults towards is pursuit. God defaults towards pursuit, and he pursues us towards the opposite of sin, which is righteousness. And we're going to see this immediately in the first statement in the text. It says, behold, behold, a king will reign. Now, this is a little jarring because if you, you look up the word behold, what the author Isaiah is actually telling us is stop. We're beginning this passage of scripture, and Isaiah is immediately saying, actually, I want you to stop. I want you to slow your roll. I don't want you to gloss past this. This is a really, really important point. Now, it, it seems a little jarring, right, to start a text by stopping, um, even as, as we are right here in the very middle of a book that's in the middle of the Bible. But what we're going to do is we're going to stop, and we're going to behold with Isaiah Years later, John the Baptist would utter, utter the same words as he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning we need to behold because this is a loaded statement. If we don't understand where Isaiah is going by saying that a king will reign, then we're going to miss the way that this passage applies to our life. So what we're actually going to do, I want you to strap in with me here for a second. We are about to walk through the significance of that throughout the entire Bible. I'm actually going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to end in Revelation, and I promise we're still going to get out of here before 2 p.m. <laughs> so in the beginning, God created everything. He created man to be in a perfect relationship with himself. He created us to enjoy God and to, to glorify him forever. But as we know, Adam and Eve, the first humans, they disobeyed. They failed in in an act of rebellion, they turned away from God. And as they did that, the entire world was cursed. Sin and death entered the world. Now, as we go forward just a couple chapters in Genesis, we get to Genesis 3, verse 15. We already see that God, in an act of grace, he makes a promise. He promises that one day he is going to undo that curse. And he's going to do it by crushing the head of Satan. He is going to overcome that sin and death. Now, as the story of the Bible continues to unfold, we see that God calls a people to follow him. He calls a people to follow him not because they're special, not because they have anything inherently better than anybody else, but by his unmerited favor, he calls a people to follow him. And they're to follow him in faith. They're to reflect his glory to the world. But what we see is that this people, just like their father Adam, they sin. They rebel and they turn away. But once again, what we see is that God, in his grace, preserves these people. He refuses to destroy them. He continues to walk with them. And he's looking towards a greater day when he'll ultimately deal with sin and death. Now this people continues to grow in number. And they come to God with a new request. And their new request is, we would like a king. We want to be like the other great nations that are around us. Now, God grants them this promise, but he promises to them 
you know what? This isn't going to go well for you. You're going to have a king, but the king is actually ultimately going to fail you. The king is actually ultimately going to exploit you. And this is just what happens. Their kingdom eventually splits in two. And it turns out that even the kings of the people are ultimately flawed, are ultimately sinful, just like their father Adam. Yet God in his grace still allows, allows them to survive. Even in the midst of larger nations, even in the midst of, lar- midst of larger kingdoms, he still has a plan. Now this brings us to the book of Isaiah. All right, we're already at Isaiah. You guys hanging in here with me? All right, we've made it to Isaiah. Now by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 6, we see this prophet Isaiah, and he receives this vision. And it's a grand vision. And it's a vision actually of judgment. But it's a, this judgment is that God is going to bring restoration because what God is promising is that the king's word, the king's failures aren't going to be ultimate, but God is actually going to do something greater. We get to now Isaiah uh, chapter 11, and we see a picture of a seemingly dead end of God's people. It almost seems like at this point we should give up, and they're pictured as a stump. But what we see from that stump is that a righteous shoot is going to come from that stump. And the righteous shoot from that stump is going to be one who will reign. This is what we're looking towards now as the king is getting clear as we continue to go through the scriptures. Now we get to the point where we are in Isaiah 32. And by the time we get to the end of Isaiah, what we see actually is that a king is going to reign and he's going to come and bring judgment, but he's not going to just judge us and destroy us. This king is actually going to show us mercy. And the question is, how is this reigning king going to show us mercy? We see, if you're taking notes or want to look at this later, you can check out Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 52 and 53, that the king himself is actually going to take on the form of a servant, and that this servant is ultimately going to suffer, and that this servant is going to take our place, and he's going to lower himself to the point of death so that we can one day have the chance to reign with him. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, what we see is a person who steps on the scene, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he comes, and he identifies himself and says, that suffering servant, that's me. If you read Luke 22, verse 37, Jesus says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered for our transgressors, for what was written about me has its fulfillment. And then what Jesus does is he goes and finishes the work. He goes, he walks, he suffers, he lives a perfect life, and he walks all the way to the cross where he dies, and then he raises from the dead. And what we see is that promise that we looked all the way back to in Genesis 3, Jesus has now accomplished it. Now I'm going to fast forward us all the way to the very end of the Bible. If you want to look at Revelation 22 sometime later, what we now see finalized is we see that there is a king. And what word does it use about this king? He is reigning. The king is reigning on the throne forever. What we see this morning, before we even start into this text, as we stop and step back, as we behold this king, is that from start to finish, it has always been about a king who will reign. It has always been. From before time to this time where we are now to the end of time, it is always about a king who will reign. Now this should 
excite us. This should humble us. This should blow us away. And you might ask me this morning, how does this motivate us not to be complacent? Well, one thing, it motivates us not to be complacent because we have a God who's not complacent. Our God has never been complacent. In our own moving out of complacency, as we sit here and we already feel the weight of maybe whatever you feel like you're stuck in, as you sit here, what we know is that it's not our complacency, our trying to get out of it isn't a reaction to us just trying to better ourselves. It's a response to a God who is already on the move, right? But we also know that this is a prophecy. If you look at uh, chapter 32, just in the first five verses, the word will is used eight times. This is a prophecy, which means that this is a certainty. We already know how it ends. Has anybody here ever heard somebody say, begin with the end in mind? Yep, anybody? Yeah, it's like a, a pretty normal saying. Well, based on all of the scriptures, based even just on the beginning passage, we already know how it ends. So this should frame the entirety of our lives as we know, behold, a king will reign. Now, as we look at verse 32, we're still just in the first verse here. It says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. This morning, we see that it's not just uh, that he'll reign, but it's how this king will reign that motivates us out of complacency in righteousness and justice. These are words that are actually used again in verse 16 when it looks at the outpouring of the Spirit. Righteousness and justice are going to come from that. And this is important because this morning, what that means is if a king is reigning, this is what it's going to look like, right? A.K.A., if you see a king reigning, you are going to see these things. And this means that they both, righteousness and justice, point to the king. Why? Because he personifies them. Because he created them. He himself defines them. Righteousness and justice. Now this means also this morning that if you, if you hear somebody, you're walking around, and you hear somebody who says, yeah, I care about this king, but they don't care about righteousness and justice— then I think you might have to have a little bit of a question because you might want to say, hey, maybe they actually care about a different king than the one that we see here in this passage, right? At that point, if we hear somebody saying, oh, I care about a king, but not these things, what they really care about is just a cheap imitation. It's just a knockoff, right? It's like if you go, you know, you're walking around and you, you, you buy a Rolex for $5, maybe a pair of Oakleys for $5 if you have a little more taste. At the end of the day, it's, it might look good for a while, right? It, it might last. It might feel nice. But eventually, it's going to show what it really is. It's just a fake. The king that we worship is a king who will reign in righteousness and justice. Now, as we look at the next few verses, we see the effects of this righteousness and justice rolling down. In verse 2, we see a refuge pictured in the midst of a fallen world. In verses 3 through 4, we actually see redemption on the move. As righteousness and justice are moving forward, we see that redemption has happened. It's a, it's a picture of wholeness. Uh, it's actually engaging all of the senses. It's engaging the heart. Um, if you look at verses 3 and 4, we see a people who at first they didn't see. At first, they didn't pay attention. At first, they didn't understand. They didn't speak. And I, I wonder this morning if you can relate to any of those things before you came to know the Lord. This is what we all were before we came to know Christ. But what we see is that eyes are opened, that those who once only heard are now paying attention. 
We see that hearts understand and that tongues that once stammered are speaking distinctly. This is a picture of people coming to know this righteous and this just king as these things roll down. As they're continuing to roll down, we get to verse 5 and we actually see now that the fool will no, will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be, uh, will said to be honorable. This is what happens as righteousness and justice are on the move because this is a picture of what our king's reign looks like. Now, we can't be complacent as we hear this this morning because we're actually going to all meet Christ's righteousness and judgment one way or the other, right? Because we hear this and it sounds so good. It's this prophecy and we see these effects. And and you might say to me, Andrew, this is great news. And it is. It's great news to all of us except for Except for one thing, there's a little problem that we run into. And that is that in our own strength, we all are unjust. In our own ways, we all are unrighteousness. As Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. As we saw as I walked through the history of the Bible, not a single one of us, no matter how good you might think you are, no matter how bad you might think you are, none of us can get away from the fact that we too are like our father Adam. We are flawed, we are sinful, and are on our own, we are bound for death. We will all stand before a righteous king. And so the question that I want to ask, even here at the beginning of this sermon, is will we be condemned justly before a righteous God? Or will we instead choose to rest in his righteousness? This morning in complacency, are you resting in yourself? Are you resting in some other idea that the world might offer? Or are you resting in a king who justly offers his own righteousness through his sacrifice? If you're hearing that this morning, this is an invitation to believe. Believe in this this king Now, we also can't be complacent because we're called to join into his mission as it relates to his righteousness and judgment. So so what that means is that that we should be be marked by or we should be about his righteousness and and, and justice, right? If we are under this king, if we're following him, as we're going, we should see righteousness and justice inside of us. And now this is important because that means this, this isn't kind of a menu. I think sometimes Christians kind of hear it and they're like, oh yeah, righteousness, you know, that's the trend right now is to talk about that. Or justice, you know, I saw a lot of people tweeting about it. It seems like it should be something important for us. This isn't a menu of options, right? This isn't a happy meal where you say, oh, I want this, but I don't want that. These are things that we are to be marked by as followers of Jesus. And I, I know sometimes some people are so focused on righteousness that they don't care about justice. And they say, you know what, I care about this, but I, I, don't, I don't know about justice. That seems a little bit too, you know, over on this side or over on that side. In God's kingdom, there is no such thing about somebody who cares about righteousness but does not care about justice. The reality is, is that outside of Christ, we are all justly condemned. So anytime we're talking about justice, we are always making a point directly towards the cross at some point. And anytime we overcome injustice, what we're doing is picturing this king's reign. But some other people, though, they only care about justice, and they say, you know what, I don't care too much about God's righteousness. You know, maybe they have a a bumper sticker that talks about, you know, this cause that they care about. Maybe they like to tweet about things, or maybe they always are up on the, the latest trend. 
But this isn't what we're called to either. We are called to a justice that is rooted in the righteousness of Christ the King. Because here's the, the fact, it's always been about his glory. We know where it's going. And we are, as we're going and doing justice, we are always calling people towards a relationship with this King so that they will also be able to reign with him forever. Now, this is how we engage in a fallen and sinful world. And this is really important for us this morning because, again, these are things that we're marked by. These are things that should be seen as somebody looks at us. Uh, there, was a, there was an elementary school teacher I was reading about, and um, this, this teacher was kind, of, was kind of tired of her kids. They were kind of beginning to get on her nerves because she'd be teaching the class, and then all of a sudden, you know, a little kid would tap her on the shoulder, and they, they would need to tattle on, on their friend, you know. They, they had, you know— something to say, and then she start teaching in, and somebody else would tap her on the shoulder. Because, you know, with kids, they, they always have some sort of injustice that's been done against them. I, I don't know if anybody, you know, any teachers in this room can relate to that, uh, to kids that like to tattle on each other. Um, what this teacher did, actually, was, was something that was pretty genius. She said, okay, I'm going to save myself a little time of listening to all of these little injustices from all of these kids who are tattling on the next kid. And she, uh, she brought in a plastic phone, so just a toy phone, and she said, this is the tattle phone. Whenever somebody has done something unjust against you, I just want you to go call the tattle phone and tell it everything that's wrong. And so uh, what was pretty interesting is that one of the kids' uh, parents in the class was a reporter, and he also did something genius. He said, hey, can I put a recorder on this phone so I can listen to what all of these kids have to say? <laughs> and so um, what, what resulted was hours and hours and hours and hours of kids reporting every injustice throughout the day. I, I think one of, my, one of my favorite, actually, tattles was a kid who called, and they tattled that their friend kept waking them up while they were pretending to go to sleep. Lots of things like that, right? You can imagine what I'm talking about here, okay? Um, so the kids continue to do this. But, but what happened uh, as this kind of experiment went on is, is really interesting. Is It worked really great at first, but eventually the calls started to slowly stop. They started to trickle to a halt. And the teacher was wondering, why are these kids not calling the tattle phone anymore? And what they realized is that these kids no longer just wanted to be listened to. They, they, they were tired of just telling their injustice to the phone because what was wrong is that nothing was happening about it. It was all empty words. Listen, this morning, as we sit here before the text, the world is calling, and they're looking, whether they know it or not, to see who is going to answer the phone. Who is actually going to show the righteousness and justice of, that is different from what they actually have seen in the world? And my question this morning, is it going to be Christians who answer this? Living this king's reign in righteousness and justice? Resting in it and bringing it to the world? Or will we too be found to have no answers in our lives? Will we too be found to just be empty words? We are called to the righteousness and justice of our king. And we cannot be complacent because our king will reign in righteousness and justice. The second reason that we can't be complacent, though, this morning is that the world is fallen. As we continue in our text, we saw the first five verses. Now I want us to look at verses 6 through 8. 
Uh, so we saw the king who was reigning in righteousness, but now we're kind of moving away from prophecy. We saw everything in the future tense. It was saying, will, 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 will. We get to verses 6 through 8, and now we're in the present. In verse 6, we see the fool who is here. Now, the fool is somebody who lives without any type of acknowledgement or any type of submission to who God is. So that's who the fool is that we see in verse 6. Now, as we get to verse 7, we see kind of an interesting word, uh, scoundrel. Has anybody here ever called somebody a scoundrel? I've, I've never done it. I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe this could be your goal next week, you know, call somebody a scoundrel. That, that might be kind of cool. Um, but it's actually an interesting word. Um, the, the Hebrew word that is used here by Isaiah, by Isaiah, this form of it, is only used here. And so Isaiah is actually really trying to make a point, uh, being specific in naming this type of person. Um, and, and what the Hebrew word here is really conveying is, is different from the fool. Uh, this is more of somebody who is, is devious, somebody who is uh, trying to, through deception, work for their own gain while also putting other people down, okay? So the fool is known by what he or she lacks, which is submission to the reign and rule of God. The scoundrel, on the other hand, is known by what he or she has, which is a determination to promote themselves at all costs. And what we see in verses 6 through 8 is that the fool and the scoundrel are presently on the move. Now, growing up, um, my, my sister and I, um, we, we used to go to the beach every year, and we used to kind of you know, hang out in the waves. And, and on, a, on a super windy day, my sister and I would, uh, we would jump. We would get in the ocean. We'd sit like where the water was about one to two feet deep. And uh, on like crazy, crazy stormy days and stuff, I don't know why my parents let us do this. We would kind of sit in the water there and we would just drift down the ocean because the current was so strong. It, it was a really fun game. Like you're only in a foot of water, but you're like drifting super fast to the side. We'd hop in, we'd drift down, we'd be about, you know, 200 yards down the beach when we got out. You know, you'd only be in in a minute, and you'd be that far down the ocean. Um, and that, that sounds innocent. That, that was pretty fun for us. But on those days also, where the current was so strong, where there were storms, um, there was also an, another reality, right? Further out to sea, there was something that is called a rip current. And... Um, a rip current is something that actually will pull you out to sea, where you can't get back in yourself. Um, actually, I actually looked this up, and on average, every year, a rip current kills uh, 100 people in the U.S. Now, what's especially dangerous about a rip current uh, isn't just that they're incredibly strong, but oftentimes, an unsuspecting swimmer can't see the currents. It's invisible to the eye. And this morning as we look to what's happening as the fool and the scoundrel are presently on the move, what we see is that there is more pulling on us in the current of this world than we often see. The fool and the scoundrel are moving presently against the king. And we see this in the text and we also see this in our own lives. And what we know as we see this current of the world that is pulling is that that current comes at a cost, doesn't it? Comes at a cost for those who are swept up in unrighteousness, running to false gospels, wrecked by empty idols that they pursue. As Ecclesiastes says, people are running towards that which is just vanity. It says it's like chasing after the wind. But other people are swept up in injustice, 
those who are oppressed and overlooked, those who are pushed down and passed by, those who are seemingly invisible and inconsequential when they were created in God's image. Don't we feel this in our present world? Don't we feel the results of sin, the results of this current of the fool and the scoundrel that is on the move right now? What they're doing is they're trying to undo the righteousness and justice of this reigning king. Don't we feel it in our city? Sometimes as we read the news, don't we feel it in our families? Sometimes as we try to work through things, don't we feel it in our own hearts sometimes when we just wake up to start another day? This isn't a new reality. Um, if you read Psalm 73, we see David reflecting on the exact same thing. He feels the pull and the current of the world. He sees the fool and the scoundrel on the move. And David says, he asks God, he says, why is it that the wicked in all of their ways seem to prosper? He goes so far to even ask, is it vanity that he's even lived and tried to pursue righteousness? We feel this, but we can't be complacent this morning. Because as the fool and the scoundrel, as the current of this world is drifting against the reign of our king, we are called to stand on something else. If you look at verse 8, we, we, see, we see that we're called to stand on something else. And we're going to get to this where it says, talks about who, that who is noble, Right? But before there, I just want to walk a little bit deeper into the verses about the fool and the scoundrel to see how they're undoing the unrighteousness and the injustice. As it looks to the unrighteousness, if you look at verse 6, we see that they're speaking folly and errors, false doctrine, false ideas, lies with their mouths. It even says that they're actually busy with iniquity and sin living in ways that are offensive to and against God. And it even goes as far to say that they're practicing ungodliness. They're practicing it, right? I think about, um, just like Ayana, for instance, she might, she might practice softball, or, you know, Kevon will, would practice the keyboard. These people are, are practicing, aka they're, they're working at it, they're getting better at it as they go. This is the unrighteousness that we so often see that is going forward in the world. But it's not just unrighteousness, it's injustice, right? You know, what's so interesting is you start to read verse 6 and 7. It starts off so focused on, you know, all of these, you know, unrighteous things. But then all of a sudden it turns and looks at people who are being oppressed through injustice. Why is this? It's because unrighteousness and injustice are brothers. We can't separate them. They go together. One always leads to the next and the other leads back to the other. They're a cycle of sin. We see that the hungry are left unsatisfied. Those who are thirsty are deprived, being passively ignored. Then it says that the poor are being ruined through lies. How easy, as an aside, is it for us to just look the other way, right? Justice requires that we have open eyes. But we stand on something else. It's pretty bleak until we get to verse 8, and we see the noble person. And it says that this noble person stands on noble things. Now, this is kind of interesting wording that he's using here. Uh, a couple ways that we could look at nobility. Uh, one way that you might look at somebody who's noble is to say, oh, this is somebody who has particularly good, you know, good character. But the other way that we look at nobility is actually somebody who was born into uh, kind of a, a higher relationship, who has a status, who has a royalty. Um, 
if we are brought into a relationship with the king who will reign, if you look back to verse 1, this is us. We are brought into nobility. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. And we stand on something else as those who have been made noble and brought into this king's reign. It is this king where we find our identity. It is this king where we find our mission. Even as the world is drifting, even as the fool and the scoundrel are on the move, we can't be pulled by the currents of the world. Rather, we go and pursue those who are confused by the lies of unrighteousness. We go and help those who are oppressed by injustice. And we even call those who are the fool and the scoundrel to repent as we go. So we can't be complacent because a king will reign. We can't be complacent because the world is falling and drifting, but we must stand on something else. And finally, we can't be complacent because we're not alone. Look at verse 15 by us. Now we're going we're gonna to skip over the call to the complacent women, and we get to verse 15, and we see the word until, until the Spirit is poured out. Now, now, if we kind of just stopped before we got to this point, if we kind of stopped before verse 15, we'd have two realities, right? We'd see, okay, one day a king's going to reign, and okay, also this world has fallen. And for me, that's, that's where I often stop. But see, our hope doesn't come there because, you know, if, if we kind of stop there, our temptation is to say, okay, to bring, it, to bring justice and to bring righteousness, I'm just going to kind of strong arm this, right? I'm just going to go force this in my own strength. And what, that, what happens when we do that is it doesn't last, Right? Or we say, okay, if this is all on me, we get overwhelmed. We get overwhelmed with the largeness of this call. But what comes next is crucial. It's crucial for us, and it's crucial in the entirety of this passage, because all of a sudden, the entire passage turns. It turns on a hinge when we see the word until. Even though a king is going to reign, things are looking grim. Verse 14 says the palace is forsaken. The fool and the scoundrel are on the move, but until... The Spirit is poured out. We cannot be complacent because the Spirit is poured out. And what we know is that means that we are no longer doing this on our own. We are now empowered by the Spirit, and we are now enabled by the Spirit to go and to do this very work of God. There's a man named John Newton. You might have heard of him. He lived, he lived in England in the, the 17th century. And um, he, as a young man, he was directly involved in the transatlantic slave trade. And as a young man, when he was actually on one of these ships, he had a dream. Now, while he was standing on this boat, so I'm going to kind of describe his dream to you. While he was standing on a boat in his dream, a mysterious person walked up to John Newton. And this person was representing God, and he, he gave him a ring. And it was a very costly ring, and he charged John Newton. He said, keep, keep you know, keep this carefully. Um, don't let go of this. Don't lose this. If you hold on to this ring, everything's going to go good for you. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to be safe. But if you lose this ring, you're going to be miserable. So John Newton takes the ring, puts it on his finger. He feels pretty good at this point. He's a little nervous that maybe he's not going to be able to keep it himself. But then while he's standing there with the ring on his finger, another man comes up and this man comes to him and this man represented Satan in his dream. And he questions him and he says, why are you wearing that ring? That looks dumb. That's not going to help you. This is foolish. Whoever made that promise to you was obviously lying. You don't need it. Why don't you just get rid of it? 
So finally, Newton is convinced. He's like, okay, I guess this other guy here uh, is, is, you know, more smart than the first person. So he takes the ring off and he throws it into the water. Now, as soon as he throws the ring in the water, immediately terror ensues in the dream. Volcanoes start going off. He becomes miserable. Everything is destroyed and ruined. And as he's standing there, he thinks that this is it. He thinks that it's all over. But as this is happening, the other man, the first man, comes back up, the one who's representing God. And he comes to him and he asks Newton, he says, what did you do? And John Newton said, trembling, he said, I, th- I threw the ring over the side. He expected judgment. At this point, he thought that this, this person who gave him the ring was just going to say, that's it for you. But he didn't. This person who's representing God said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get that ring for you. And he dives over the edge and he dives down to the bottom of the water and he gets the ring and he brings it back up to the top. And Newton is, is excited, you know, immediately when, when the person who's representing God gets back up, everything gets better again. Now Newton reaches out his hand and he says, okay, I'm ready to take the ring back. But the man says, no, this time I'm going to keep the ring for you. This time, I'm going to hold on to the ring. The person who's representing God says, I will keep the ring for you. And you might ask why. And the reason is so that Newton could never take that ring and throw it overboard again. It was no longer his burden to bear alone. It was no longer for him to do in his own strength. Brothers and sisters, this is what God does for us. This is what the Spirit does for us. He doesn't just give us life but he actually holds it for us. He seals us in, so now no longer is it us in our own strength holding this, but it's us resting in him. He keeps us, he enables us, and he empowers us. That's exactly what happened for Newton. Eventually, he was brought from death to life by that same spirit. And he was enabled to know God out of his past of unrighteousness, out of his past of injustice and slavery, and he would go on to write a song about that, And that song, you will probably know, is called Amazing Grace. He would then go on, empowered by that same Spirit, to labor faithfully, kept to the end as a faithful pastor. He would eventually even mentor a man named William Wilberforce, who he would actually help abolish the same transatlantic slave that he once took part in himself. The Spirit changes everything for us. It's not about our strength anymore. It's about humility. At first, we didn't even desire the right thing. At first, we weren't able to do the right thing. But now, when the Spirit comes, we are changed. We are empowered and we are able to follow. And we do it in humility because we know that it wasn't our doing. This is how we work as we follow this King, right? We're not left on our alone. We're not left alone. This entire passage that we're reading here, it's impossible until we get to verse 15. And when we get to verse 15, it changes everything. We can't be complacent because the king will reign. We can't be complacent because the world has fallen. And we we can't be complacent because we don't do it alone. But now, just as I close this morning, I want to look at what we're called to instead. Instead, we are called, I want you to look at verses 9 through 13, to rise up and to repent. Now, this is a wake-up call by the time we get to verse 9, this this calling in the middle of the passage. Um, God is letting them know that the the harvest is coming. Um, And these these women actually assume that it's going to come, but but it's not. 
And so what they need to do is they need to move. They need to get out of where they are. You know, maybe they thought they were entitled to this. Maybe they had just gotten used to things as they were. But what we know is that they are in danger, passively detached from the Spirit and the King. And so often, just like them, we too drift in complacency. But instead, we're called to rise up. But what I want you to see as we read those words, rise up, is that the way that we rise up, it's not, by, it's not by our own strength. It's not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. But we rise up, what does it say in verse 9? Through hearing his voice. We rise up in a way that's completely countercultural to the world. You know, we, we might hear the, world, the word uprisings, right? Sometimes we hear, you know, somebody, you know, did this uprising or somebody else did this. You know, it's, it's a movement where somebody takes this bold action. But for us as Christians, the bold action that we take is listening. Look at verse 9. Listen, hear, receive, take in. This is where the movement that Christians have starts. This is where we begin rising up. It's by listening to the very words of God. This was the fuel for the church in Acts. The, the uprising in, in Acts, where the church in verse, Acts 17, 6, it says that, that the believers had actually turned the whole world upside down. This happened because they were sitting under and listening to a word that is more radical than anything else you're going to find in this world. It is the very words of the king. We are called to rise up, but we're also called to repent. By the time we get to verses 10 and 12, we see that uh, Isaiah calls them to tremble, to shudder, to make themselves bare, and to tie a sackcloth around their waist. Um, and, and we see that th these would be signs of repentance. These would be signs of lament. This is what people did when they were actually repenting, when they were taking things seriously and turning. I mean, we see in verse 14, right, that, that as they do this, they're now looking and seeing how bad things are. So their repentance, it actually anchors them to a, a bad reality, but it actually anchors them to a true reality. Um, and on top of that, if we look at verses 12 through 13, we see that their repentance actually also uh, draws them to what's better. It says that they're called to look towards the pleasant fields. They're to, to look towards the fruitful vines, towards the exultant city. This is what we're called to as well. We are called in our repentance to look towards reality and acknowledge that. And then we're called to look towards what is better. I feel like so often, you know, we can be scared, right? We can be scared of sin. We can be scared of the mess that we might have in our own lives, right? But in our repentance, we don't have to be scared of that because we can take that to Christ, in our repentance, we don't have to be distracted by lowly things that take our attention away, but now when we can repent and turn towards that which is better. And as Christians, what we do is we don't just turn away. We don't just turn away like somebody else would, but we turn towards something. We don't turn from, we turn from, but then we turn to, right? To beauty, to reality, to grace that overflows in Christ. This is what is a distinction of those who are in him. We look towards our king's reign, our king who has taken our just penalty for sin and our king who offers his righteousness himself. So this morning, if you are stuck in complacency, we are to rise up by hearing his word and to repent by turning to that which is better. Now, as we close, I just want to just take one second and just tell you what these results look like. 
Listen to verses 16 through 18. I'm going to read these over us one more time. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the results of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. As we do this, these are what the results that come. Now you may look at me this morning and you might say, Andrew, that isn't what reality looks like. Verses 16 through 18 that you just read to me, that's not what I'm going to see when I walk out of this building. And you would be right, right? That can be discouraging to us. That can even be confusing to us as Christians who are looking towards this prophecy of a God who will reign, but we're not seeing it finalized yet. One thing we do know, though, is that this king will reign, that he will come back, and that he will ultimately make everything right. But I actually think that we can see glimpses of verses 16 through 18 here. And it's not in this world. You would be right. We don't see that in this world. But we see that actually in the body of Christ. We see that in the church. We see glimpses of that right here right here in this room among us. We don't see it perfectly, but the church is an outpost of this reigning king. A church are those who are called to reflect this, to reflect his reign, to raise up his righteousness, to join with him in his justice, and to call other people to come and know this king himself. We begin to see this as we walk day in and day out. This is what we're called to as we go onward as the body of Christ. The word, the Hebrew word for quiet resting places in verse 18 for those results, this is actually the positive sense of the same Hebrew word that was used to describe the word complacent in verse, in verse 9. So the word for the complacency that we're called for, the negative usage of that word, we actually see the positive usage of that word in verse 18. So what we see is that it goes from a perversion, complacency of that word, to a redeemed word. What we see together in the church is that even our complacency under the reign of the king is redeemed. And so we know that as we go forward together, our king will reign, and that even in the midst of this fallen world, we don't do it alone. May we as the church rise up. May we repent. And as we walk in that way, may we see his reign more clearly every single day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see your reign. We pray, God, that we would be a people who knows your justice, who knows your righteousness, not because of what we can do on our own, but may we be a people who knows it because we have received it in you, because you are our righteousness. You are the one who took our just penalty, and you are the one who has called us now as your church to show what that looks like. Help us, God, as we go from here to show that rain and to rest in us, to rest in it. Protect us from complacency. May we be a people who walk together, who are spurring one, one another on 
to love and to good deeds until you call us home. Amen.